Good evening and welcome. I'm Mary Wood for the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. I'm so happy to be with you here in the green room of the Veterans Building here in San Francisco and with those of you who may be listening to this program at a later date. And I'm very excited to welcome you to San Francisco Ballet's 80th repertory season. We all know, don't we, that San Francisco Ballet is the oldest professionally, continuously performing ballet company in the United States, and a grand old lady at 80. I'm also pleased to welcome you to our first Points of View program for the season. This is Wednesday. They're all Wednesdays, and this is January 30th, 2013. The Points of View lecture series, along with a lot of other adult education programming, is produced by the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education, directed by Charles Chip McNeil, and administrated by adult education coordinator Cecilia Beam. They also produce a large number of children's programming, both in the Opera House and out in the community. We produce the Meet the Artist interviews, which many of you are familiar with, held in the Opera House um, an hour before curtain time at select performances. And then we produce a growing number of special programs designed to further engage our already pretty engaged audience. As many of you know, these, many of these Lectures and interviews are recorded for podcast. And you'll want to go to the ballet's website, sfballet.org, to listen to the interviews, to surf around and find all the really interesting things that are being added all the time. And a lot of video is being added. And video interviews, I know you'll be fascinated. As always, it's a pleasure to see many old friends and familiar faces in this audience, and I especially want to welcome newcomers to our programming. Hope you'll enjoy it and that we'll hear from you about how you've enjoyed it. One of the things that we like to feature during our seasons is visiting lecturers and scholars in dance in the dance world, dance history, dance performance. I want to call your attention, starting with what should have been on your seat when you came in, which is our season brochure for adult education programming. And if you will turn to an inside page on the bottom right, you will see an advertisement for an upcoming lecture this weekend Our visiting lecturer, Mark Franco, is a professor of dance at Temple University and editor of Dance Research Journal, uh, the Oxford Studies in Dance Theory. He will discuss Suite en Blanc, as well as choreographer Serge Lifar's career trajectory, starting with the Diaghilev Ballet Russe and continuing through his long career at the Paris Opera. Mr. Lifar is credited with important innovations in classical ballet technique, as can be seen in Suite en Blanc, as well as with numerous publications on dance and dance history. 
I've used some of his books for my own research. Video footage of Mr. Lefar's dancing will be part of this presentation. The event is free, open to the public. We do require an RSVP. The information about how to do that is to be found in your brochure. There are tickets still available, spaces available. There are spaces still available. So I urge you to follow the directions, the prompts in your program here, which tell you to call a phone number, or send an email to the address that's in here. That, by the way, will be on Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. in the San Francisco Ballet Building. And then our visiting scholar, Dr. Tim Scholl, will lead a fascinating series of events um, exploring Russia's impact on modern ballet. And the events that he will be conducting are held in conjunction with our production this year's encore production of Onegin on program five. So again, you'll be watching the brochure here. You'll be listening to future announcements. You'll go to the website and read more about the programs and presentations made by Dr. Scholl. <clears throat> We're about to move into talking about this season and what's new at San Francisco Ballet. Let's start with who's new in the company. We have two wonderful new soloists, Shane Vertner and Luke Ingham. If you were in the Opera House last night, you saw them dance, and you'll see a lot of them in the coming weeks. We have two new corps de ballet members, Marie-Claire Delis and Emily Cado. We have, we're always proud to promote from apprentice to corps de ballet, dancers who've come up through the San Francisco Ballet School and through our trainee program. And so without necessarily being aware that you've seen them dance, you've seen them dance. Sean Bennett, Megan Amanda Ehrlich, Jillian Harvey, Ellen Rose Hummel, Henry Sidford, and Shion Yuasa. We have a new stable of apprentices. Most of these dancers have, again, come up through the San Francisco Ballet School and our trainee program. So watch for Lacey, Lauren, Alexander, Emma, and Wei. The company was up to some hijinks this last summer, and I'm sure that most of you were following the fact that they traveled over the world between the time you saw them last and the time you've seen them in Nutcracker. They went from Moscow, Russia to Sun Valley, Idaho, and places in between. We have some great pictures. Vanessa and uh, Zaharian, and I think, is that David or is that Jean-Pierre? It's David Carpetian. <clears throat> Apparently, they were treated like rock stars in Moscow. And here's autograph signing down in the front. I think you can see Maria Kochakova. In the fabled Bolshoi Theater. And then, from the sublime to the possibly ridiculous in Sun Valley, Idaho, apparently the bus broke down. You, it's not that easy to get there from here, and um, 
It's a beautiful place. They have a beautiful performing space. And apparently they enjoyed themselves and were very well received in Sun Valley, Idaho. So now we're on to just doing a quick swing through the riches to come. This is yet another exciting repertory season Helgi has put together. And um, we're going to, of course, this evening be going into depth about Program 1. So we'll start with Program 2 at the moment. And that's a pretty exciting one. As you're all aware, we have established a good relationship with the Hamburg Ballet and its director, John Neumeyer. And John Neumeyer choreographed the extraordinary Little Mermaid um, the la over the last few years, seen here and in film. And Helgi invited John and his company to come and perform themselves. So our next program will be the Hamburg Ballet dancers performing in Neumeyer's Ballet, Nijinsky. It's a full-length piece. The writing about it, the word about it is very exciting. And if you liked The Little Mermaid, you will probably be enchanted. It's probably not the right word. Intrigued by this. <clears throat> then program three, we pick up repertory again. And this one's just as exciting. This is the 100th anniversary of the premiere of Rite of Spring, the sensationally modern and scandalous music by Igor Stravinsky and the original choreography by Václav Nijinsky. <clears throat> A new version has been created by Yuri Posakov in honor of the 100th anniversary I don't think we'll have the riot in the aisles that accompanied the original produ production in 1913 in Paris. They say Nijinsky stood on a chair in the wings and shouted the counts to the dancers, who could hardly hear the music over the screaming of the riot in the audience. Also on that program, an encore of Mark Morris's piece from last year, Bo for an all-male cast, and an encore of the Ashley Page piece, Guide to Strange Places, to the music of the same name by John Adams. <clears throat> Program four, for the repertory, we have an encore of our, present, our recently revived production of Scotch Symphony, choreographed by George Balanchine to the very well-known Mendelssohn music. Our company had performed this back in the 1950s when it was first presented, when it, it was first choreographed in 1953. Um, had not been seen since then. This is a different side of Balanchine to the one that we are more accustomed to. And then an, an on, oh, a world premiere, our third world premiere, which will be extraordinarily exciting by very popular choreography, the choreographer Alexei Ratmansky. He's done, <clears throat> he is one of the most in-demand choreographers around the world. He did his first American choreography here 
when he did Carnival des Animaux for us 10 years ago. Many of you remember that well. And a revival of Christopher Wilden's very beautiful Within the Golden Hour, which was performed by the company on tour and very well received. Program five, back by popular demand, as they say, Onyegin, choreographed by John Cranko to a score of Tchaikovsky. Most of you will remember that this is not the opera score. This is different Tchaikovsky music. A beautiful, dramatic piece. And as I mentioned, our visiting scholar will be presenting a number of programs about Russian ballet surrounding our presentation of Onegin. Program six, a revival of the beautiful staging of Raimonda, Act Three, which is incidentally the Rudolf Nureyev version of the staging of this which we've inherited from the Royal Ballet of England. And then a return to the repertoire after a few years of Val Canaparoli's intensely dramatic work, Ibsen's House. An abstraction of the characters from many of the Ibsen plays. and an encore of one of last year's pieces, choreographed by Edward Liang, Symphonic Dances. Program seven brings us a return to the rep after many years of Helgi's interesting piece, Crisscross, created in 1997, not seen here very recently, Crisscross because he has combined the score of Domenico Scarlatti from the 17th century, 18th century, and the music of Arnold Schoenberg from the 20th century. This happens to be an archival picture. I wonder how many of you can recognize who the ballerina is. That would be Joanna Berman. An encore of Yuri Posakov's piece created last year, Francesca de Rimini, to the Tchaikovsky tone poem. Intensely dramatic, brilliantly colorful, very well received last year. It will be very good to see it again. <clears throat> a revival after a number of years away of Symphony in Three Movements. This was created by Balanchine for the Stravinsky Festival in 1972. Didn't enter our repertory until 2000, and hasn't been here recently, and we don't have a picture. So you get to see a picture of George Balanchine. And then Program 8 is going to generate a good bit of excitement when we have the U.S. premiere of Christopher Wielden's Cinderella. 
We are familiar with many of Christopher Wilden's one-act works. He has made quite a career around the world of choreographing full-length works. His Alice in Wonderland just appeared at the Kennedy Center in Washington, danced by the Canadian Ballet, was staged on the Royal Ballet of England. He has done a number of other full-length works, bringing the old stories to life. And for us, Cinderella a piece shared with the Dutch National National Ballet and which was premiered there in December. Well received. We can hardly wait. Here are sketches. One can only be fascinated. And it's that stunning. On Program one, which I imagine most of you will be going across the courtyard to see tonight, we see a reprisal of, I confess, it's my favorite ballet in all the world, Jerome Rabin's In the Night, choreographed to four of the Chopin Nocturnes. This is really a piece about three couples in the nighttime. <clears throat> This is the first couple representing youthful love. Sofiane Silva and Tiet Helmets representing mature love. Lorena Fejo with Jean-Pierre Filanova representing tempestuous love. It, was, it is beautifully danced this season. We have a very exciting world premiere. <clears throat> Choreographer Wayne McGregor, whose work you'll recall from a number of years ago, Eden, Eden, which was very stimulating. And then a couple of years ago, Chroma, which everyone really found very exciting. Some of us loved it, some of us didn't love it, but all of us found it exciting. And he was ready to come back this season with his first commission for our own dancers. You will recognize his movement style, his team of musicians and his lighting and stage designer, Lucy Carter, have created an extraordinary space for his extraordinary movement. And once again, I think you'll find it very exciting. It's amazing what he can get the human body to do, and we thought we'd seen it all. Well, I'm not going to say very much about Sweet en Blanc because we are very, very lucky this evening to have, as my guest, repetitor Mena Gilgood, who staged the work for San Francisco Ballet, is intimately acquainted with the ballet, with the work of Serge Lefar, and I am going to introduce her now. Mena was trained by the great Russians, including Tamara Karsavina, <clears throat> Lubova Gorova, and later Rosella Hightower. Mena has had an incredibly diverse performing career, creating works with Maurice Béjart's Ballet of the 20th Century, and is a principal dancer with London Festival Ballet, which we know now as the Nas English National, <clears throat> and Sadler's Wells Royal Ballet. She has worked extensively as an international guest artist, dancing with Rudolf Nureyev. All of this we're going to get her to talk about.
She then directed the Australian Ballet for 14 years, followed by directing the Royal Danish Ballet for a couple of years. She stages both classical works, such as her own highly acclaimed productions of The Sleeping Beauty and Giselle, and then works choreographed by Maurice Béjart, Serge Lifar, and others, and she teaches and coaches around the world. It's her experience, of course, with Serge Lifar's ballet Suite en Blanc that brings her to San Francisco and to this evening's conversation. So please welcome Mena Gilgut. So just as a mic test, I'm going to say welcome and get you to say something. Well, thank you very much, and good evening. I'm delighted to be here. Forgive me, I'm going to keep my coat on because I think it's quite cool. There's a, San Francisco has your reputation for being warm, which I, I'm not so sure about. <laughs> you, you heard it wrong. <laughs> I want to start by saying I really offered the most cursory overview of an incredible um, laden career with adventure and the people, the places you've been, the people you've met. And I really would like to ask you to, in your own words, hit some of the high points. Um, any ballet student has read the tales of the magic time in Paris with that amazing number of great teachers. So ex describe that time for us in your training. Yes, it's certainly difficult to, to choose any highlights as I've been extraordinarily fortunate uh, in the people that I've worked with, starting, as you say, with the very great white Russian teachers who had uh, schools in Paris. Um, and also... I had the great fortune to work with Tamara Kasavina, um, Bastav Nijinsky's partner. She taught in London. She taught a mime class once a week and a classical ballet class once a week. And I was nine or ten years old, and I was allowed to join in with the grown-ups. And that was quite extraordinary. She was, by that time, in her, I would say, late 70s. Uh, she had the most wonderful, beautiful, deep voice. And the way she showed the extracts from uh, uh, the mime scenes of the great ballets, like um, the Lilac Fairy from The Sleeping Beauty, the famous mime scene, La Fille Malgardée, uh, which he actually taught to Ashton and that he integrated into La Female Garde. So I worked with her for a while and then uh, later I moved with my mother to Paris and I worked with the great Lubov Egorova for four years, three and a half years every single day. She had her own st studio in the, um, uh, on the ground floor of her house she was married to Prince Trubetskoy, who was very handsome, very tall, must have been 85 or so. And he used to cook during class. And we would uh, smell the wonderful Russian 
borscht and all sorts of Russian cuisine during class. And then when Madame went on too long, he would just poke his face, his head through the door and just, Madame, <laughs> Dada, Dada. <laughs> and then she would eventually finish. She was extraordinary. She was quite beautiful. Uh, she taught sitting next to the piano. She had her pianist um, who I think she had brought with her from, from Russia, who was the most wonderful accompanist. And she loved her to play really beautiful classical music. And she only used to get up from her chair to show the adagio. And she would get up, she just wore little white gloves and a blue suit, and she would come to the center of the room and she would just show the most stylish and beautiful adagio. The rest of the class, she would be sitting there next to the piano and we would all gather around her and she would show every exercise with her hands. So we would understand it just from the hands. The hands were the feet and then she would demonstrate. Uh, but she was, she was extraordinary. I also worked with Pro Brzezinska, who was about 90 years old and this was a little bit earlier. Um, I think I was only about eight or nine. We used to go and see my father who lived in Paris for weekends. And she was tiny. And if you know your ballet history, uh, you would know she had a problem with her back. And she was, I mean, nasty people said she was hunchbacked, the, the rivals. Um, but you, you could see there was a problem. And she used to get up. I don't remember a great deal about the actual classes, but I can remember her very well. She would get very angry, and she would jump up on a stool to be higher to be able to see the whole class. And very often she would grab hold of one of the students or dancers, professional dancers came, all sorts came. They were open classes. And she would grab hold, and she would shake and shake and shake. And she was this tiny little skeleton bird-like woman. Uh, extraordinary ferocity and strength and belief. She, it was great. And all, the, all of those Russians were passionate, absolutely passionate about dance, about what they did, and about if they thought you were talented, they were going to scream at you. And you took that in good part. It's not like nowadays where if you're screamed at, it's like you know, you're being picked on or something like that. No, 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 you were, just, you were just pleased that you were noticed. It meant that they thought you were worth it. And it egged you on, too, like sports coaches, you know? I know from my study of dance history that the dancers, as you say, flocked to these studios in Paris, and those teachers were not connected with any companies, particularly. They just drew the dancers from the other companies and oh, then prepared you for going forward. I'm sorry? I will, and prepared you for going forward into the companies of the world. Yes, absolutely. I mean, at uh, Madame Igorova's, a lot of the Paris Opera young dancers used to come and take class as many times as they could. Uh, so there, there was a great mix. And I had the luck also to learn repertoire with Igorova. So I learnt Aurora from Sleeping Beauty, fairy solos, um, bits of uh, Swan Lake, uh, from someone who had worked with Marius Petipa, 
I mean, how extraordinary is that? <laughs> I did. I sort of realized it at the time, but of course, it's even more uh, fabulous uh, at, at this point when I when I think back. I think many Americans are unfamiliar with the European company scene during the mid and early part of the later part of the 20th century. And I'm thinking about the Ballet Marquis de Cuevas and the Béjart Company to some extent, all of which you've had experience with. Um, Can you highlight what was unique, what was special about those companies, different from the big royal, different from some of the national companies? Yes, I think, uh, I think starting with the Marquis de Cuevas company, which was uh, started by the Marquis who was married to a Rockefeller. That's how he could subsidize the company. Um, you could compare it perhaps to American Ballet Theater in that it was a touring company in Europe. It had no home theater or indeed no home studios of its own. Um, so it was a touring company which had um, regular places where they stayed for a whole month. They stayed for a month in Cannes, in the south of France, and a month in Deauville. And that's where they used to rehearse their new repertoire. And otherwise they were itinerant the whole time. Um, They had some wonderful dancers, including Rosella Hightower, Marjorie Tallchief, George Skibin, uh, George Golovin, many, many big names of, uh, of that time, including those two American ballerinas. And it was there that I first uh, saw and got to know Rosella Hightower before she opened her ballet center in, uh, in Cannes. She was a very, very great ballerina, and she was someone that uh, the Marquis de Cuevas, the director of the company, relied on quite a bit in terms of her taste for repertoire and also, I think, what she wanted to dance. What was your first performing experience in... Uh, (laughs) So, so many. Uh, My very first performing experience was with Roland Petit's company in Paris. Mm. I was 16, and um, I auditioned, got in along with eight other... Uh, young girls, uh, all of whom it was uh, the first job, and uh, we understood that it was going to be a program of um, short ballets of uh, like a mixed bill of Roland Petit's choreography. And a few months later, when we went in, having signed our contracts, it was at the old, beautiful Alhambra Theatre. Um, no rehearsal studios, no pay for rehearsals, I may say, at that time. Um, we went into the Alhambra. I had to go up the stairs at the front of the theater, red stairs, huge poster, bigger, bigger than this. On it inscribed the dates of the performances we were doing at the Alhambra. And in huge, zizi, musical. We thought, what, what, what is this? I don't understand. Well, it turned out that we were actually involved in the first uh, Zizi Jean Mer singing Tour de Chant when she did Mon Truc en Plume. I don't know if you... Um, and 
The whole of the second part of the program was easy singing with the corps de ballet, us, in the background, the men as well. And we did eventually discover that the first part of the program were little snippets of proper ballet, if one can say. Um, but it was a bit of a shock at first, although it was absolutely fantastic experience in terms of learning of stagecraft and theatre, which Roland Petit was a past master of. We had wonderful costumes by Yves Saint Laurent, sometimes high heels, short tunics, fishnet tights, <laughs> the lot, egg, plumes, ostrich feathers. Uh, it was amazing. So I did six months of that. That was my very, very first. I did a film before that, but that was... Uh, and, um, and then, well, I wanted to be a classical ballet dancer. So I auditioned for uh, the Marquis de Cuevas Company. And there was a huge palaver to get out of my contract with Roland Petit, um, which he wouldn't let me out of, even though I was the last of the corps de ballet. We had to go to lawyers, had to threaten to sue, uh, uh, big, big dramas. And eventually I got out because there was, there was no finishing date of the contract, and apparently that wasn't legal in France. So would you believe I had to pay my way out? I still had to, I paid a month's salary to get to leave. And then I joined the Marquis de Cuevas, which was after the Marquis had died, Rosella Hightower had, was no longer with the company, and uh, it was the nephew of Marquis de Cuevas, Raimondo Larin, who was a designer, and a very extravagant designer at that. So much so that six months after I joined the company, not my doing, I may say, uh, he was so extravagant that the company folded. So those were my first two experiences. And then, then I joined a, a much smaller company, Milorad Miskovic, who was a famous dancer in France, Yugoslav. I had the opportunity to study with him at one Did point. You? Yes, we'll talk ah, later. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then Rosella Hightower invited me to her center of dance, which she had by then opened, uh, to perform one of the sylphs, one of the lead sylphs in La Sylphide, which Eric Brune was dancing with her, and it was his production. So I went to Cannes, rehearsed that, uh, found her teaching was quite extraordinary, and I then stayed for, I I'm very bad about lengths of time, but certainly a couple of years, uh, resuming my studies, but also um, uh, performing in galas with her and tours, because there was a... Um, continuation, if you want, of the Marquis de Cuevas company, using, utilizing the decor and costumes of the impresario. Uh, and we toured the Far East, and we toured um, Canada and the United States. It called itself very grandly the Grand Ballet Classique de France. And we toured Japan and, uh, and many. And it was a continuation of this learning experience with Rosella Hightower because she was performing in the tours and we had no, no classes were given to us, but she used to take class uh, herself and so I would tag along and I just learned so much. It was an incredible, incredible experience and she was a huge, huge 
influence on my career and did so much for me, gave my first mm -hmm. pas de deux, and many, many things. She was an extraordinary ballerina, a great personality, probably not well known en enough in uh, the United States. She did perform with American Ballet Theatre, but not very much. Uh, she was much influenced by Alicia Alonso and by Alicia Markova. She had a, an extraordinary technique, even by today's standards, uh, and was a in, uniquely individual artist. You, at some point, encountered Serge Lifar, and we're going to connect those dots, but at what point did, did you encounter Serge Lifar? I think I first came across uh, Serge Lifar um, at some performances in Paris when I was studying with those Russian teachers. And he, uh, I remember seeing him several times perform the afternoon of a fawn. Uh, he was well past, one could say, his prime, um, but still very much of a, a stage animal. One could see how handsome he would have been and... Yeah, great, great stagecraft. I then had the honor to be chosen to dance in a, a gala performance, The Cigarette, the famous solo in Suite en Blanc, mm -hmm. which you will see tonight if you're going. Um, I was 14 or 15 at the time, and mm -hmm. Serge Riffard coached me for it. And somehow that solo pursued me through my career. I danced it many, many, many times on those tours with the Grand Ballet Classique de France. And then later when I joined uh, London Festival Ballet, we did it a great deal. And then later when I became director of uh, the Australian Ballet, the ballet was already in its repertoire. Serge Liffard had staged it about two or three years before I took on the company. And by that time he had passed on. And then I staged it, oh, I don't know how many times, and I think one of the first times it was performed in the United States was when I brought the Australian Ballet to New York to the Metropolitan Opera House, and we performed it there along with, on the, on the same program as Giselle. Um, it was, I felt it was a wonderful way of presenting all the dancers in the company. Really? That would, that would cover a lot of dancers. I want to, um, there's so many dancers in Sfino Blanc and so many in Giselle. I want to make sure that we don't run out of time because I know that the audience may have questions. So I'd like to go to Sfino Blanc. We do have pictures from, um, I believe, probably the dress rehearsal of this week's performance. And um, as you can see... You oh, that's a lovely one. Isn't that fun? Yes. All the guys in the air. Um, Sweet en blanc, in case you don't know your French, simply means um, a suite in white. And that's what we see. Um, the white against black. There was a, actually a, quite a funny story because um, the Marquis de Cuevas company decided to stage Suite en blanc. And I don't know the exact background, but I suspect what it was was that they didn't want to pay royalties. So they called it something else. They called it noir et blanc, black and white. <laughs> uh, and that resulted in Serge Liffard uh, challenging the Marquis de Cuevas to a duel in the 1950s, I think it was, 
um, in the Bois de Boulogne, and they had that duel. <laughs> I, there is a description of it in our program notes. Apparently, the, they cried and made up. Yes, yes, but, um, yes. I think a, a shoulder was touched by a sword, and then they hugged and uh, made it. Uh, it was a great publicity stunt. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, Let's look at these pictures, and then I'm going to simply ask you to tell us what you want us to know about the piece. Um, these are obviously principal dancers, Sofiane and Teach. This um, is from the, uh, the one before, oh, was right. from the flute, so the little pas de deux before the flute. And there are um, charming names for each of these sections. Yes, the, the, the ballet mm -hmm. is performed to a score uh, by Edouard Lalo, which is called Namuna. Uh, it was a full-length story ballet in the late uh, 19th century, or uh, early 20th century, I believe. Uh, sort of a Sherazade Arabian Nights type of ballet. Serge Rifar picked some of those, uh, some parts of the score, uh, utilized the names. So you have the famous cigarette solo, the flute solo, uh, the serenade, um, para, uh, parade de Foire, I think, is the finale. Uh, so all of these, this is the uh, siesta, the three girls who have uh, long tutus, the only long tutus in the piece. They start off the ballet and they come back in the finale. It's a wonderful display piece. It's beautifully constructed, as you'll see, and it really gives a chance for a company such as San Francisco Ballet, which has such a multitude of wonderful principles, as well as tremendous depth of talent right through the ranks, an opportunity to display very many of those in the one performance. But there are so many in San Francisco Ballet that there are three casts of virtually every role and uh, four of some. Um, what we will see when you look at these, um, it's clear that the gentlemen are standing up on platforms behind the ladies and I you don't see that in this particular picture I do want you to comment about just the set and the architecture um, there's a wonderful this is would be from the cigarettes yes this with, is a famous cigarette with Sarah Van Patten yes, with her wonderful eyes yes and um, the, the, pas de deux. the lovely pas de deux yes with one one ton and Vito Mazzeo. Beautiful. They, um, she had danced it previously in Hong Kong Ballet. Because I've staged the ballet not only in Australia but also for Hong Kong Ballet, just recently for English National Ballet last year and the year before, and also for Houston Ballet some years ago. And one, one was in Hong Kong. And here's another um, of the variations um, with Maria Kochakova and David. Just before the flute solo. Ah. Yes. And oops, so we're going to go backwards just so we can keep them in our minds. I do want to get you to talk a little bit about the set and about the, just the concept of the stepped architecture. Um, it's a very effective way of um, bringing up the curtain. It looks mm -hmm. as though the dancers are suspended in midair. It should do. I think it does. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to give away too much <laughs> uh, about it. Um, I think one of the interesting things about the ballet is Serge Liffard's style. 
and if you look at it, the way he has utilized off-balance um, situations, especially in the pas de deux, uh, because with most classical ballet, um, the dancers are very centered on their points mm -hmm. or on their half points, and he has used pulling off balance and coming back onto balance, and this must have been quite early days uh, for this type of movement. And when you look at how far that kind of thing has gone with Wayne McGregor's yeah. work, but it's really interesting to mm. see the juxtaposition because that's really where it all started with Lifa, with Nijinska, and um. with Masin, and who come from the same stable of the Diaghilev Ballet. Uh, Lifar also utilized what he called the sixth position, turned in position, mm -hmm. and the seventh position also turned in. And he loved to use um, the torsos in a, a Egyptian style, so the dancers are, are facing, the dancers are facing the, the front with their torsos, but are in profile and walking off, as you see in the uh -huh. beginning, and within the padudos as well. Almost everything is done in that fashion. Gives it a very 1920s Aubrey uh, Beardsley look. While you're putting Lefar in some context, George Balanchine was definitely um, very much in that circle. And I'm sure that some of this group knows this, but not all of them know that Lefar um, actually created the role of Apollo. Absolutely. In Balanchine's Apollo, Apollo as it yes. was known, Apollon Nouchagette, yes. and the son in Prodigal in Son. In Prodigal Son, yes. yes. So that's an amazing relationship. Yes. And for us Americans who identify more with the Balanchine. Of course, yes. Um, this ties us to far a little bit, I think. I think it's very interesting also for the dancers um, to work in a different idiom and different styles of choreography as they do here. And the huge difference, I would say, between Balanchine work, if one can generalize, and Lifa, I mean, not, not many ballets are, are still done by Lifa, uh, is the, the, the very specific arms um, and epaulement that Lifar utilized, whereas Balanchine is much, much freer and much more emphasis on the speed, on the footwork, uh, on all of that, whereas the arms, they can flow much more freely, if you want. It sounds like you did enjoy working with our dancers, which I was happy <laughs> I to hear. certainly did. When you were working with them, can you recall... Was there something that you needed to say to them, to pull them into this particular style that you found um, perhaps a universal observation? Um, well, a few, to, uh, talking about the, the French, the chic, um, and also not taking it too seriously. Um, of course, taking it seriously in rehearsal goes without saying, um, but in terms of the presentation to the audience but it should be tongue-in-cheek and making it look like second nature uh, and really presenting to the audience unashamedly. There are some ballets, particularly some, more, some of the English story ballets, where it's absolutely not correct to be going out to the audience. You need to draw the audience back into you. Um, but with this ballet, no. Pow. Out. <laughs> 
Well, that was evident to me. I enjoyed it just thoroughly last night. And I, I think the dancers are close to that, uh, tongue-in-cheek. They seem to be enjoying, savoring some of the quirky, charming things. Yes, I mean, I, I also said to them, um, you know, be, be human beings. Don't be, I am a ballerina. I think we have a nice amount of time in case there are questions from the audience. Um, and just, it's such an interesting work. And, of course, Mena's experience is so vast. I'm wondering what any of you might have as questions for her. Looking for the hands to come up. There's, a, there's one right there. Thank you. The question is, did you find the people you work with have particularly interesting sense of humor? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question because sense of humor is, is exactly what the ballet needs. And yes, indeed, uh, I just found that the dancers are so individual and they take what, what you suggest to them and, uh, you know, and for the most part and they run with it, which is absolutely delicious. It doesn't happen everywhere. Um, and I can't help but think of Sarah Van Patten in particular. She just goes and it takes off, and it, it's, it's wonderful. Another question about the history, about the... Yeah. Oh, that was, <laughs> I was, that was one of my fallback <laughs> questions. Thank you. Um, we, I just let it float through there that you had danced with Nureyev. We, many of us have been to the De Young Museum. We've seen the Nureyev exhibit there, <clears throat> which is closing soon if you haven't seen it. Um, fill us in about that. Well, I, I had wonderful experience. It was, again, through Rosella Hightower, who was director of the Ballet de Marseille, and she was staging The Sleeping Beauty in Barcelona with Rudolf Nureyev and I believe it was Noella Pontois was supposed to dance, um, but she was injured, and Rosella asked me to come and dance. So I had two weeks to prepare. I was with the Béjar company, actually, completely out of <laughs> non-classical, non so to speak, at the time, what seemed non-classical. And I had only two days in Barcelona to work with Nureyev, whom I had met before but never worked with. He arrived halfway through the first day, I think. We went down to a tiny little studio in the beautiful Liceo Theatre, and he could not have been more helpful. We just did half an hour rehearsal there, the dress rehearsal, and then we did five performances uh, day, day after day, and we went out to dinner afterwards, and I learnt how to mop the steak so that you don't have too much butter or grease on it, because the Spanish like to use a lot of oil. So he used to pick up his napkin and mop the steak. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that, that was a wonderful experience that I, that I had with him. And uh, then the following year, I also danced in Don Quixote with him, which was different because we had three weeks' rehearsal in Marseille, where he was staging it, and he was uh, re-choreographing the Gypsy Pas de Deux, which he re-choreographed two or three times. And the version that is now generally done is the one that we did at night, because 
he used to come in, do class with the company, rehearse all the corps de ballet, all the solos, everything. Then we used to go for dinner to the little Italian restaurant around the corner. And then back to the theater. Then he would do all his solos. And then he would choreograph this pas de deux on, on him and myself. So that was quite fantastic as, a, as an experience. And he was all the things that you know. I mean, uh, uh, you look at the interviews, you look at some of the film footage, you look at that humor, talking of sense of humor, um, his way of, uh, of utilizing the English language was just brilliant. I don't think it was translated straight from, from the Russian. It was just a way with words and uh, sometimes quite obscene. <laughs> These are good things to know about Nureyev that maybe we didn't know. Um, somebody else. I have a question if nobody else is going to jump up. Um, the technique required of the dancers in Sweet en Blanc. Uh, as I watched last night, I just kept thinking, that's hard. That's hard. Um, is that Lefar's experience? Is that he was working with the Paris Opera dancers who were, are extraordinary. Um, talk about at, the at, challenges at, of it. Yes, Serge Lefar sort of... Uh, started a rebirth of the Paris Opera Company. I mean, they were a pretty mixed bunch for quite a while, and, and even under him, but they had some extraordinary dancers, and they were strong technically, and they had beautiful footwork, and I think he, he made the most of all of those things. And, of course, there was the, the wonderful Yvette Chauviré, uh, who was a, a fabulous dancer, a great stylist, they had wonderful personalities and, and great, great style. Actually, Chauviré didn't have that much technique. Nina Virubova uh, was also a great stylist with, with strong technique. Um, it's, it's, it's hard technically, but it's not... What, what is hard is for the corps de ballet, they, there's that section in the first finale where four of them have to do turns in a diagonal, single and double and single and double, and that's hard to synchronize, to be together. Um, but in a way, the music pulls you into the choreography, and um, I, I, I think if you, if it flows very well. It's, he was the kind of choreographer who used what I call a, a logical sense of movement, um, you have a choreographer, wonderful choreographer, such as Kenneth Macmillan, um, where when you're, especially when you're first learning the choreography, it feels like the exact opposite of where you want to go. Whereas in Lifas, uh, it, it, it goes the way you want it to go. And so if you just go with it, nine times out of ten, if you're a good dancer, it, it works. And I think by not focusing on the technique, focusing on the musicality, on the timing, on the style, on the selling, the technique comes through it. And San Francisco Ballet 
dancers. Again, I mean, uh, I look like I'm doing publicity for San Francisco Ballet, but it's absolutely (laughs) genuine. Um, You know, they they have technique for miles, plus so much else. So no problem there. It's always very interesting staging any ballet, but this one in particular for different companies, because there are different kinds of hurdles for some and other things that might have been hurdles in... Hong Kong that are absolutely nothing here and a a little bit vice versa. I think it was a question of believing to what degree uh, the head and arms have an importance in this ballet. Uh, That was the hardest to get across. That you you go to the extreme of that, you don't just stay straight here. And utilizing the different space, that you utilize that space, you utilize your normal space, you utilize the space down, downstairs, as I say. Well, bef- you're going to love it. You really are. Before we actually say thank you and goodbye, I do want to thank you all for being a wonderful audience, for joining us again this season, reminding you of the things that are coming up, to go to the website and check things out. Um, Sign up for the class this Saturday afternoon, information in your brochure. And with that, I'm going to now say, Mena Gilgood, it has been an absolutely delightful conversation. Thank you so much. We're looking forward to seeing this ballet many times again here at San Francisco. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much.